You are listening to the Center for Urban Research Teaching and Outreach's Curto Conversations podcast. In each episode, campus and community experts will highlight collaborations that contribute to the advancement of the human community. Marquette University is located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the traditional lands of Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee peoples along the southwest shores of Michigami, North America's largest system of freshwater lakes where the Milwaukee, Menominee, and Kinnikinnik rivers meet and the people of Wisconsin, Sovereign, Anishi, Nave, Honchang, Menominee, Anita, and Mohika nations remain present. Welcome to today's Curdo's podcast on policing and police reform. My name is Dr. Darren Wheelock, and I am an associate professor of criminology and law studies in the Department of Social and Cultural Sciences at Marquette University. I will be speaking with my colleague, Dr. Megan Strohschein, also an associate professor of criminology and law studies and the chair of the Department of Social and Cultural Sciences. Dr. Strohschein's research focuses on policing and law enforcement, and she has published dozens of articles on the subject. After the conviction of Derek Chauvin for the murder and manslaughter of George Floyd, I had a conversation with Dr. Robert Smith, historian and director of Curdo, and Dr. William Wellburn, Vice President for Inclusive Excellence, about how the Marquette community can make sense of the trial and the conviction of Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd, and set that in the broader context of policing in the United States. I suggested a conversation with Dr. Stroshan on this podcast, so here we are. Police violence against marginalized communities of color is hardly new. There's a long and deep history of policing and law enforcement being utilized as tools of oppression. For example, police were often part of the formal state apparatus to enforce slave laws and return runaway slaves. Police and law enforcement also played a role in lynching when lynch mobs called for mob violence. The murder of George Floyd seemed like a unique historical moment, however, possibly demarcating the way Americans understand policing and criminal justice, almost a before and after the death of George Floyd. Perhaps it was the graphic video which circulated quickly and helped frame the incident as excessive and necessary use of lethal police force. To be sure, being able to witness these events firsthand via video has been sobering. That said, meaningful reform, to the extent that it's even possible within law enforcement, has been slow, incremental, and possibly even stalled. The Minneapolis City Council members that initially voted to quote unquote defund the police last year are now largely balking on their earlier votes. Even calls to quote unquote defund the police are often confused with calls to abolish the police the former being a realignment of resources with a realignment of police duties and responsibilities, and the latter being a complete abolition of policing with something new put in its stead. So Megan, I wanted to start with your take on the George Floyd incident and the Derek Chauvin case. What about that case, do you, in your view, do you think may ultimately um, prove it to be this pivotal historical moment? I think there were a couple of things that are different about the George Floyd case. One is that 
Floyd's death was particularly gruesome and obvious. It was obvious that Floyd was unarmed, he was incapacitated, and he was not resisting. I mean, it was an unambiguous act of injustice. So I think that's that's one thing that makes it different. A second thing that makes it different is the context in which it occurred. So we were in the midst of a pandemic. People were home watching TV. It was really impossible to look away. And then the the political climate was very unique. We had a president who had reversed many of the reforms that Obama had championed. So together, those things make it different. But I think another really important thing that makes it different is that this was one of the first times that we had police members saying what happened was wrong. You had mentioned some reforms that President Obama had implemented. I'm wondering if you can talk about those a little bit. Like, what were they and what do you think their impact was? One thing that Obama had done was end a program whereby the Pentagon would send state and local police surplus military equipment. Trump reinstated that program during his presidency. So the militarization of police was furthered or advanced. Another thing that Trump did was restrict the use of consent decrees and collaborative reform initiatives, which were major tools that the government had in order to reform policing. Mm -hmm. One of the common criticisms I hear is that President Obama didn't do enough to reform criminal justice, that he had opportunities to do more, that, or that what he did wasn't very effective. In your view, were the reforms that he did, were they effective, were they impactful, or was it more of just kind of performative policymaking? I think that a lot of the reforms that he had tried to institute had the potential of being very effective. Unfortunately, Due to the change in presidents and policy, a lot of the reforms were thwarted before they were able to actually take hold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I know Obama used those consent decrees. Well, under his administration, the the DOJ had uh, several uh, consent decrees out there. I'm wondering, you know, for me, it seems that, you know, it signals a deep systemic issue in policing when we had in the wake of the George Floyd death, it seemed almost weekly we had a new recorded incidence of police violence or police use of lethal force against an unarmed citizen. And I, it, to me, it just, that, that says something about the state of policing, that even when there is this heightened attention focused on law enforcement and this heightened scrutiny that even in that context, we were still seeing these repeated acts of violence against oftentimes um, people of color. What do you, uh, did you, do you have a sense about, do you you have a sense on that? You're right that we continue to see these events unfold almost on a weekly basis. I think a lot of that is the result of 
the culture of policing. Many of the changes that have occurred haven't addressed the deep-rooted culture of policing. One of the scenes that I found deeply disturbing from last summer's protest is when two police officers who pushed an elderly man in Buffalo, New York, were released from custody and dozens of their colleagues were recorded cheering their release despite the fact that there was an elderly man that sustained serious head injuries that you know was recorded on um, video. And it just seems like there's this sentiment amongst police officers that the well-being of other police officers is more important than the well-being of the communities in which they serve. Is that the culture problem that you're referring to? I think that's part of it. I think that there is a deeply entrenched sense of us versus them in policing that has only been exacerbated by the events of, of recent months and, and years. Like this us versus them. So there's not a sense of like the us is the entire community for which they are a part, <laughs> right? That, that just seems like to be a really contradictory viewpoint to what police officers are you know, what, what we would like them to do, right? To serve communities and to work with communities. And the us versus them, that, that delineation seems like that it would actually undermine the ability to do that kind of work. I think you're absolutely right. The mentality that exists among police officers too often creates a division between them and the community rather than viewing police as a part of the community. So I think that, that there needs to be much work done in terms of addressing the culture of policing. Mm, okay. Uh, I'd like to return to that point, but I, I, I also though, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are about police training, because this is one of the points in which I've seen calls for change and calls for reform. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how police officers are trained do they receive training in conflict de-escalation, in restorative justice practices, or those types of approaches to you know, dealing with difficult situations? Police receive a lot of training. Police, on average, in the United States are in the academy for about 21 weeks. In other words, about 840 hours of training. Of that, 20% is spent on use of force. However, if you look at how that is broken down, you see that only about 21 hours of use of force training is spent on what they refer to as use of force. So, so that could include policies, procedures, it could include de-escalation training, it could include a number of things, but on average, officers are receiving no more than 21 hours of training on those really critical skills. So out of 800 and some hours of total training, at most, they would receive 21 hours of training in conflict de-escalation. And chances are they're not actually getting 21 hours of conflict de-escalation. Correct. On average, they might get eight hours a day, one day of training on de-escalation. Wow. 
How about training in mental health crisis intervention? Do you know how much training they get in that? Again, the average is about a day. Wow. Well, I mean, I, go ahead. I was going to say that that's particularly problematic in that if we look at the data that we have on lethal police force, 25% of the people that are killed by police ha are suffering from some kind of mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was the case that actually resembles the case of Dontra Hamilton that occurred in Milwaukee. So I, it just seems to me like if, can you describe, so what is the other 800 plus hours filled of training filled with? Do you, do you know? Yeah, so uh, uh, the biggest portion of time is spent on operations, how to write a report, how to conduct a traffic investigation, studying the law. But the second biggest category of training is on use of force. So police spend a lot of time, several weeks of those 21 weeks, uh, emphasizing use of force. But not necessarily de-escalation, just how to use force. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. It seems like we're really equipping them we're equipping officers with really with not a whole range, a wide range of tools in their toolkit. Like we're just giving them a hammer and then saying, go out and and and, and use the hammer. Is that do you think that's accurate? I think that's very accurate. I think that police are taught early on in the academy that they are to be obeyed. They are to be complied with. They aren't to be resisted. They aren't to be challenged. And when those things do happen, they have very few alternatives other than force to turn to and how to address or deal with the situation. Mm -hmm. uh, to your knowledge, do you know if police officers, would they like training in conflict de-escalation? Is there like a a desire to get trained in mental health crisis intervention on their part? I think for many officers, they would welcome that training, that they would welcome the opportunity to expand their skill set so that when they do encounter different problems, they have a variety of tools to turn to or ways to address a situation. See, that seems like low-hanging fruit to me where if officers, if the majority of officers want additional training and the public that they serve also want them to have a wider array of tools to use, why do you think it's the case that they are still only primarily given a hammer, so to speak? I think a lot of it has to do with history and tradition. This is the way things have kind of always been. But I also think there a lot comes down to the bottom line that we're asking police to provide more training at a time we're also telling them that we want to defund them, that we want to take resources away from them. So a lot of it has to do with where those limited resources can go. Mm. It seems to me like it doesn't have to be kind of that 
you know, zero sum equation where an additional week of training and or even two weeks of training and de-escalation means less training elsewhere. But that that is a you know the the resource question oftentimes dictates these types of policy questions. I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about police recruitment. Do you think that there is a self-selection into who wants to become a police officer? Uh, yes. There's a lot of research that looks at why people become police officers and what the most common reason there is for becoming a police officer is to help other people. Hmm. But a lot of the similarities I think that we see in police today are the result of training, not the result of a certain type of person self-selecting into police work. Mm. Uh, now, with that said, there are certain groups that the police actively recruit. I mean, we are talking in the current time, we're having a very difficult time recruiting police officers. There are very few people who want to become police officers in today's climate. So the police are recruiting heavily from the military and from other law enforcement agencies. And so you do see certain groups being targeted by the police for employment. So let me get this straight. We have a situation where the police recruitment pool it tends to be current police officers and former military. That's right. Because then you start, right, that, 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 that begs questions of, well, then if that's the individuals that are primarily staffing our police departments, then the skills they're bringing are ones that are based on military presence, which then there's this feedback loop back into policing, right? If that, then if their training is, again, primarily use of force, and they're coming with skills of military training and use of force without a lot of other experiences and backgrounds to inform how they might actually engage with citizens that they encounter. That seems like that could be a potential problem with the ways in which they interact with individuals. Exactly. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> so there's been, uh, there's been some recent articles and attention about how white supremacist groups are actively trying to recruit police officers into their group and where white supremacists are trying to become police officers so then they have that training that supposedly then can prepare them for whatever impending race war they view is about to come. I'm wondering if you know anything about that or if you can speak anything about you know the that intersection because now we have this intersection of the military, police, and possible white supremacist groups. Yes, that's a, a significant problem and one that I wouldn't want to understate. But to me, the, the, the bigger problem is policing and its culture in general. I think if we look at the problems that exist in policing today, they're significant enough without that addition or that that problem of white supremacists trying to infiltrate police organizations. I mean, the current outlook or warrior mentality that pervades policing is a significant enough problem without worrying about this additional 
issue. Mm. This is, you, you've mentioned repeatedly like the culture of policing and as a warrior mentality, like where do you think that comes from? Like, like why is it that police officer, police officers have to be warriors? Why can't they be servants, right? Because the whole notion of to protect and serve would imply that at some level an officer is also a servant of the public. A lot of it we can trace back to the origins of policing. When the police were being formed in the United States, they had to claim a mandate. They had to claim a mission. And that mission was crime fighting. Uh, this was different than London police, which had a different mission. Uh, their mission was crime prevention. Mm. But for us, it was crime fighting. And that led to a particular mentality that they were the good guys against the bad guys, that it was us versus them, that it was a, a war on crime. And so that has engendered a particular mentality that has made it very difficult to serve the community. That is more of a, a guardian approach. And that's ultimately, I think, what we would like to see in policing, a shift from a warrior mentality to a guardian mentality. I see. Because when it does, when it is like good guys fighting criminals, mm -hmm. those images of who the criminals are, especially in this country, are so deeply racialized yes. that then you start seeing the problems that come out that then manifest in today's world with instances like George Floyd, right? Because people of color aren't allowed to just, you know, exist. They have to be the enemy, right? All of these things kind of really intersect pretty clearly then with the way in which we understand who the criminals are, who the quote unquote bad guys are, right? We all have right. these things in our mind. And, and oftentimes that vision is someone that from a marginalized community of color. That's right. And another issue that I think also leads to this mentality is that officers are trained from the first day at the academy that they have a dangerous occupation. Mm. And there, there certainly is truth to that. But the result is that officers are trained to be suspicious, to be cynical, to not give people the benefit of the doubt. As a result, they view everyone suspiciously. Everyone is viewed as a potential threat. Hmm. And so this influences their behavior in, in significant ways. I mean, the reason that we see so much unnecessary use of force has a lot to do with the way that officers are trained to view the public. Mm. The public that, again, they are supposedly, you know, meant to serve, which is this interesting contradiction, right? You know, it, it, it's funny, too, because I read a statistic one time in a, this is a, well, way back when, when I was a student, that in fact, I don't know if this is still true, but at the time, that there were more injuries on the occupation while working for farmers than there were police officers. And not to say that, you know, obviously being a police officer has its, 
has its its threats to you know your safety and well-being but so does farming but i don't think farmers are viewing their farm equipment in the way that police officers view the community right that's right yeah there's a there's a really interesting parallel there and, and it also seems to me like if there's fewer people that want to become police officers then could it be a situation where police departments are forced to hire less qualified people i don't think that departments are doing that intentionally but I do think that it could be happening. For example, one of the ways that departments are finding officers is by poaching them from other police departments. Mm. In the process of doing that, they may not know, realize, or appreciate that they could be hiring someone who has an extensive, say, disciplinary history or background of uh, misconduct complaints. Those, those records are often protected. And so departments may inadvertently be hiring people who have poor records of disciplinary issues. Wow, that, that's a real, that seems like that could be a real potential problem. I'm wondering if you can talk about a little bit about the, so, you know, while Minneapolis, while the Minneapolis Police Department and rightfully so has come under an, you know, an incredible amount of scrutiny based on what happened with Derek Chauvin and the other officers at the scene, the Milwaukee Police Department settled a lawsuit by the ACLU. Wondering if you can talk a little bit about the factors that led to that lawsuit, the conditions of the settlement, because we know that in Milwaukee, there's also there's also a long history of police violence against uh, people of color and a lot of tension between communities of color and policing here as well. That's right. So in 2017, there was a lawsuit filed by the ACLU on behalf of uh, nine Milwaukee residents. Uh, the suit alleged that MPD's policies and practices violated the Fourth Amendment. That, in other words, police didn't have just cause or reasonable suspicion uh, to make stops of individuals, that they were disproportionately targeting people of color in their stops and frisks. There was a study that showed that traffic and pedestrian stop rates in Milwaukee were more than six times higher for Black people than whites. That disparity was found even after controlling for crime rates and other factors that can significantly influence stops. As a result of this lawsuit, there was a, a monetary settlement of $3.4 million, but there was also a series of requirements for the police department. So uh, the police department was supposed to begin collecting detailed information about every stop they made. Officers who didn't document their stops or who were improperly stopping suspects would be subject to counseling, retraining, or discipline. The city was supposed to overhaul its complaint process, making it easier for citizens to file complaints against the police. The police were expected to change their training. They were expected to revise policies making it clear that officers can't racially profile, that they can't rely only on general factors such as appearance and demeanor in deciding to make stops. 
a lot of these changes were supposed to be audited. For instance, if, if you had a, an officer who was making a lot of stops without legal justification, the body-worn video um, or audio would have to be audited by a supervisor. Unfortunately, we're a few years out from the settlement now, and we find that the city and the department have not made these, have not made compliance with settlement a priority. Officers are still not being adequately supervised. The Fire and Police Commission is not conducting regular audits or providing the proper oversight. And racial disparities in traffic stops have actually gotten worse, not better. Oh my goodness! It, it, <laughs> oh boy, I don't. I'm not even sure where to start from that. So, do you think it's the case that Milwaukee police are actively resisting the reform, or is it just that the bureaucracy of the system is just so unwieldy and massive that change itself, if it can happen, happens really, really slow, if at all? I think there's there's some truth to both of uh, of those statements. So there is uh, a lot of administrative, uh, or there are a lot of administrative hurdles to overcome in being compliant. This would require that investigators have access to a number of different databases that are not necessarily compatible. Uh, so there are some administrative problems with with compliance. But I think there are also other problems. For instance, the Fire and Police Commission doesn't have enough investigators to conduct the audits that are required for compliance. Mm. Uh, that's a significant problem as well. So what will happen if the agreed upon conditions of the settlement are not met? Do you know? I hope we don't have to find out. <laughs> Because it doesn't seem like they, you know, you, as you mentioned, we were a few years out and we're still not seeing them. And, uh, you know, one does wonder if we will ever see them, you know, as actually prescribed by the rules of that settlement and what would happen if they aren't. But, and this actually gets to the next topic I'd like to cover, or I think is important to cover, and that's the issue of accountability and reform. In your mind, or in your, in your view, why is it so hard prosecuting cases of police violence and misconduct against officers? There are a couple of reasons. I think it's difficult mm -hmm. to prosecute police violence and misconduct. One, one is that many people, including investigators, prosecutors, and juries, are reluctant to second guess an officer's split-second decision-making. And there is this tendency for people to believe officers over civilian witnesses especially people who have been charged with crimes. So, so one issue is simply you know, not wanting to second guess officers. Another issue, it has to do with the relationship between police and prosecutors. Prosecutors work very closely with police and they need to. They need to have that good working relationship in order to effectively prosecute criminal defendants. The problem is that that means prosecutors aren't truly independent of the police. And there may be some 
concerns about jeopardizing those working relationships if a prosecutor were to aggressively, say, investigate and prosecute cases. And then a third issue has to do with the protections that have been put in place by police unions and, and part of their negotiations. I guess I would say the police investigate misconduct in such a way that the scales are tipped in favor of police officers. Accused police officers have advantages that other crime suspects don't have. For example, police officers are often allowed to review evidence, the entire evidentiary file, before they uh, give a statement as to what happened. This is extremely unusual and obviously gives them a, a great advantage. They are also uh, often, there are waiting periods that are put in place so a certain amount of time has to elapse before investigative questioning may begin. So they have time to gather their story, compare their story with other officers, et cetera. So there are these built-in protections that I think also make it very difficult to prosecute officers. You know, that's a really interesting point. You know, the, the first point about people just believe taking officers' words as truth is 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 interesting because we don't see them as just self-interested human beings that are trying to get the outcome they want. And in fact, I feel like if it weren't for the young woman that video recorded the George Floyd death, I'm not sure that case ever makes it as far as it did. And I'm not sure there's ever a prosecution and a conviction because initially the Minneapolis Police Department report Floyd's death as man dies after medical incident during police interaction, omitting from, from their version, right, of the story, that there was a person kneeling on the neck of an individual with his arms uh, behind his back, which is a lethal position, right? So the fact that people, that officers' words are just taking at face value, it to me is, 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 is very strange. But then also too, the role of the unions in this, because you know, historically labor unions don't have a lot of power, you know, power in this country, right? The, many labor unions are, are oftentimes aren't, don't have all that much political power relative to you know, larger entities. And it's just, it's interesting that police unions somehow though have been able to maintain um, a lot of negotiating power and authority in those types of protections. Do you know why that is? Sure. So I think part of it is that they've been able to command the political support of Republicans. And so that's given them a large advantage. I also think that um, the history of police unions is instructive too. So for many years, for decades, police unions were really in place to argue for better pay and better benefits for officers. A lot of that changed in the 1980s when we were in the midst of a major recession. It became impossible to really increase salaries. That the, the bargaining for salaries and benefits was ineffective. Mm. So what unions did instead was start negotiating for 
the rights of officers during disciplinary proceedings. And that's when many of these protections came into place. Mm. One of the negotiating points also, from my understanding, is the records of police officers being made public, right? In, in many jurisdictions that the public are, they're not able to see what the complaints and what the files of police officers are. I'm wondering if you can talk, if you can talk about that a little bit. Are there any jurisdictions in which there is, you know, that level of transparency and, you know, what, what is the importance of being able to see those police records, police officer records? Sure. Um, so there was an interesting study that Reuters did of police union contracts. So they took a look at police union contracts. Uh, there were about 80 or so of them. The majority of departments called for the erasure or the eradication of disciplinary records for officers. So for many officers, after six months, 24 months, you know, three years, there's a, a time frame that the disciplinary records must be kept. But after that point, whatever that time is, the records are deleted, destroyed. Um, nearly half of police union contracts, uh, as I mentioned, allow officers access to those investigative files. About 25% allow officers who are accused of misconduct to forfeit their sick time or to use vacation time rather than serve suspensions. So the transparency that you're looking for is, is not common. Police disciplinary records are public in only 12 states currently. Wow, that, that seems like that could be another potential problem when you have a system in which you want accountability, but you actually don't know what a police officer's record is in, you know, 38 or states and, you know, possibly a, a other uh, jurisdictions too at the federal level. I'm not sure what that policy is. I'm wondering if we can conclude on some perhaps ideas for, you know, where we might move forward. You know, you've mentioned a lot about the problems of the police culture, one that is primary, that is heavily militaristic, one in which officers often view themselves at odds with the communities that they're supposed to serve, one in which they feel allegiance to each other, perhaps over their role to serve the community. And I'm wondering, uh, What's a way to, how can we change or address that kind of culture? Because to me, until that can get looked at or until we can get movement on the culture, then the policy changes may only have a really limited effect. I agree. I agree that we have to start with changing the culture of policing. Part of that, I think, means that police have to own their history, that they have to acknowledge, accept, and, and again, own the fact that the history of policing hasn't always been pretty, that, that our very origins of policing in the United States have had a, a racial angle or um, a, a race basis to them. I mean, our earliest police were slave patrols. Police, as you mentioned earlier, participated in lynchings police enforced Jim Crow segregation laws. So I think part of it is, is acknowledging that past 
and dealing with it before we can go forward. But then changing the culture of policing, I think, means that we need to move from a warrior mentality to a guardian mentality. Mm. That we have to change the way things are done. Part of changing the police is changing the way they see the public. And so part of that might be that we require police officers to have non-enforcement interactions with the public, that that's a requirement of the job, that people get to know the public in a non-enforcement role. Mm. So is that what you mean by guardian mentality? So yeah, a guardian mentality is an officer who is there to serve the public, who is there to protect the public, one who is uh, a part of the public rather than separate from the public. Mm. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Strohshine, for your thoughts on this really important but complex issue. And thanks for all the listeners listening to um, today's podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Puerto Conversations. You can learn more about this podcast and the work being done with our partners by visiting the Center for Urban Research, Teaching, and Outreach website at marquette.edu. You can reach the podcast via email at urbancenter at marquette.edu. Music for this episode is by Ronald E. Johnson, whose music can be found at Choco Geek on SoundCloud.